0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member today at fedsoc.org.
1: Hello and welcome to Federal Society's webinar call. Today, January 18th, 2023, we host a post-oral argument courthouse steps on Turkey Halt Bay Casey AS versus the United States, which was argued just yesterday before the court. My name is Kayla Kleist and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call, as the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. In the interest of time, I'll give an introduction of our speaker brief, but if you'd like to know more, you can access his full bio at fedsoc.org. We are fortunate to have with us Mike Hurst, who is a partner at Phelps Dunbar LLP, where he employs his in-depth knowledge of the court system, investigative and prosecutorial agencies, regulatory arena, and public policy realms to help clients facing government investigations, enforcement actions, regulatory matters, general litigation, and policy issues. Immediately prior to joining Phelps Dunbar, Mr. Hurst served as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Mississippi from 2015 to 2021, after serving as an assistant U.S. attorney in the same district for more than eight years. During his time there, he oversaw some of the biggest cases in Mississippi history and handled some of the most difficult, complex cases in that office dealing with white-collar crime, public corruption, and financial fraud. We're grateful to have him with us here today. One last programming note uh, before the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them via the question and answer feature so that our speaker will have access to them when we get to that portion of today's webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Mr. Hurst, the floor is yours.
0: Thank you so much and thank you for having me. Good morning, everyone. And um, I want to first preface this with, uh, they asked me to do this last week. I had a number of high school basketball and soccer games last night, so bear with me on the presentation today. But what I will tell you is, It it really is a fascinating case what we're gonna discuss today. Uh, One involving statutory interpretation, uh, issues of separation of powers, uh, the powers and the uh, interactions of the three branches of government, foreign affairs, criminal law. This case has it all. So let's jump in if you will. First, the question presented to the court is whether U.S. District Courts may exercise subject matter jurisdiction over criminal prosecutions against foreign sovereigns and their instrumentalities under 18 United States Code, Section 3231, and in light of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which is codified at 28 U.S.C., 1330, uh, and for our purposes today, 1604 and 1605. So let me give you the background on the facts of this case. Um, And I'm going to butcher this name. I, I apologize, but Turkey Halk Bankasi, or as it's translated, People's Bank of Turkey, Turkey, was set up by Turkish law in 1933 as a state bank. It's majority owned by the Turkish government. I believe almost 90 percent of the bank is owned by the Turkish government. Um, It has no branches, employees, officers in the United States, but Turkish law regulates control of the bank. The bank is an affiliate of the Turkish Ministry of Treasury, and the finance minister for Turkey is actually the one that oversees the People's Bank of Turkey. So, this case arises from the U.S. sanctions regime uh, targeting Iran between 2012 and 2016. And that regime allowed U.S. allies like Turkey, that had long relied upon Iranian oil and gas, to continue purchasing those commodities if they complied with certain conditions. Among those, the allies were required to deposit Iran's oil and gas proceeds into a bank under their jurisdiction and limit Iran's use of the deposited proceeds to certain purposes, such as humanitarian relief or bilateral trade. And throughout this period, the Turkish government had designated its bank, the People's Bank of Turkey, uh, Hawk Bank, to serve as the sole repository of Iranian oil and gas proceeds. So fast forward, the government here, federal government, our federal government alleges that in 2012, a, a Turkish Iranian businessman named Risa Sarab had hatched a scheme to divert these funds at Hawk Bank to uses not permitted by U.S. sanctions. Specifically, Zarab had approached the Turkey's ministry, excuse me, Minister of Economy, which was also Hawk Bank's governor, um who in turn directed that the scheme should be conducted through hog bank and the united states government claims that senior turkish government officials at various times directed the bank to continue and accelerate the scheme and at zarab's direction hog bank employees helped him transfer funds within the bank from iranian accounts to accounts belonging to Zarab or his front companies, which he then transferred out of the bank to exchange houses and front companies in Turkey, which he then took those funds and purchased gold and transported that gold to Dubai. Once in Dubai, that gold was converted into cash or currency and remitted to Iran or used to conduct international financial transfers on behalf of, of Iranian persons or entities. Uh, at the bottom, the the scheme's purpose, according to the U.S. government, was to create a pool of Iranian oil funds in Turkey and the UAE that could be used for Iran's benefit. And it was alleged that Zarab ultimately passed about five percent of these funds through United States accounts on route to other countries. Now, uh, former Halk Bank employees and executives were accused of conspiring to conceal these schemes from the U.S. Treasury Department. In fact, making misrepresentations to treasury officials. Uh, in 2017, Zahra pled guilty and uh, agreed to cooperate with the federal government in this prosecution. And it, in turn, the federal government uh, indicted three former Hogbank uh, executives, one who stood trial and was actually convicted, and the other two have not been caught. So fast forward to almost today, in October of 2019, federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York uh, obtained a six count indictment against Hawkbank, Bank, charging various uh, things such as conspiracy, uh, conspiracy to violate these this, Iran, uh, this U.S. sanctions against Iran, uh, money laundering, bank fraud, and, and many others. So in response, the bank filed a motion to dismiss in district court. Uh, but the district court denied that motion, saying that sovereign immunity only applies in civil cases. And thus, foreign sovereigns stand like private persons in criminal cases with no immunity under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act or even under common law. Uh, and in the alternative, the district court held that the FSIA, the Foreign Services Immunities Act's, this commercial activities exception to the immunity would overcome any immunity that the the, uh, bank may have in this case. Now, the bank appealed that uh, immediately, the motion dismissed to the second circuit, which affirmed the district court's holding. On the merits, the court first held that subject matter jurisdiction under 18 U.S.C. 3231, which as many of you know, is the general grant of jurisdiction that came down from the Judiciary Act of 1789, Because the the phrase, the words, the actual language in Section 3231 says that it grants jurisdiction, quote, for all offenses against the laws of the United States. Pretty broad against all offenses against the laws of the United States. But the Second Circuit also acknowledged that uh, some of its previous holdings, uh, specifically interpreting the text and structure of the foreign Sovereign Immunities Act demonstrated that Congress actually intended that FSIA um, to be the sole basis of attaining jurisdiction over foreign states in courts. Um, But in that context, um, there is an exception or a limit to that immunity. FSIA grants immunity to foreign uh, entities, but there are exceptions to that immunity. And one exception is if the foreign entity is involved in commercial activities. And uh, there's under, I think it's 28 U.S.C. 1605, there are three prongs that have to be met in order to uh, do that. The first two prongs, which require U.S. acts, uh, the second circuit in this case, treated the basis of the indictment of the communications between the bank and United States Department of Treasury officials, the misrepresentation to Treasury officials as qualifying for that commercial activity in the United States, satisfying the first two prongs under Section 1605. Um, The court also held that the bank's uh, actions overseas, in Turkey and, and overseas, actually had a direct effect in the United States because they led to those funds clearing through the U.S. financial system, which satisfied the third prong under 1605 which was an exception to the immunity granted under 1604. Um, and then finally, the second circuit said, even if you don't buy any of the stuff they said previously, um, the court believes that the state, the foreign entity here, Bank, uh, lacks criminal immunity under the common law. Uh, it really didn't get into that in much detail, but it did make note of that at the very end of this decision. Um, Obviously, the bank went to the Supreme Court. Court granted certiorari last October, and here's what the bank argued, and I think pretty persuasively to the Supreme Court. First, out of the gate, in its reply brief, the first sentence of the bank says, "Quote: No federal court has ever presided over the criminal trial of a foreign sovereign." Close quote. Let me say that again: No federal court. Has ever presided over the criminal trial of a foreign sovereign? That's pretty. That's a pretty powerful argument. Um, the bank went on to argue, first off, under Section thirty two thirty one, that that general grant of federal criminal jurisdiction actually does not confer jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns and their instrumentalities, uh, specifically because the Supreme Court in a prior case. Uh, A very, very prior case in 1812 known as Schooner Exchange, where uh, Chief Justice Marshall in that case said, in order to confer jurisdiction, and that case actually involved, as I mentioned earlier, the Judiciary Act of 1789, which had similar which is where 3231 came from, and it had similar jurisdiction uh, provisions. And in this case, Schooner Exchange, specifically relating to Admiralty, uh, Chief Justice Marshall in that case said, um, the descriptive of the ordinary jurisdiction of the judicial tribunals did not confer jurisdiction, in that case, over a French warship. So in that case, a foreign instrumentality. And Chief Justice Marshall said that in those instances where you want to confer or Congress wants to confer jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns because of international law, it's the birth of a new country, all all those factors, Chief Justice Marshall said Congress needed to speak, quote, in a manner not to be misunderstood. So according to Hulkbank, the general grant of criminal jurisdiction in 3231 should not apply here because Congress has not specifically spoken in a manner in which it would not be understood in wanting to apply criminal jurisdiction to a foreign sovereign, or in this case, its instrumentality. So that's that's the bank's first strong argument. Um, now, the bank also said if there's any doubt remaining Then Congress removed that doubt under the Foreign Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which provides broad immunity to foreign states. And in this case, majority-owned instrumentalities like the bank, quote, from the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States, close quote, except as provided in pre-existing international agreements or in specific subsections therein. And that's under 28 U.S.C. Section 1604. And specifically, the the exceptions, so you have a broad grant of immunity to foreign sovereigns and their instrumentalities under 1604. But 1604 says there are exceptions to this immunity. And specifically, one of those exceptions is international agreements. But another exception is if that entity is providing commercial activities. And in this case, um, the Hulk bank argued that that exception did not apply here. First, the case, according to the bank, is not based upon conduct in the United States, despite what the government alleged, um, because the government's allegations against the bank are all activities that occurred in Turkey. Remember, there are three things. There are three. Qualifications under that uh, commercial activities exception to immunity. The first two really involve acts in the United States. And the bank says there were no acts. All the acts that the bank did occurred in Turkey. So it knocks you out of the first two exceptions to immunity. Um, So the third exception is did it have a direct effect in the United States? And the bank says no. Um, The government, the federal government here claimed that the direct effects were the fact that the money. Pass through the US banking or financial system. Uh, But Hawk Bank says that's too remote to the alleged conduct. Um, So that's the argument of the bank. The the government obviously has a different perspective here. (laughs) And the federal government here says that it's in the national interest that the executive branch of our three branch federal government um, has the discretion to prosecute sovereign, foreign sovereigns. Um, Specifically in this instance, a foreign sovereign or instrumentality, the the bank of a foreign sovereign that assisted Iran in evading U.S. sanctions. Uh, According to the United States, this lies at the heart of the executive branch's Article II authority under federal criminal law and under foreign policy. So two very prominent uh, Article II authorities for the executive branch. Um, first, the federal government, the United States relies upon, as I mentioned in the bank's argument, the general jurisdictional statute conferring criminal jurisdiction under 18 U.S.C. 3231. Um, the, I'm not going to repeat the language, the language is pretty broad. It's pretty, all, pretty all-encompassing. Again, it gets back to statutory interpretation, and we'll talk a little bit about that from the oral arguments yesterday, but it's a a pretty compelling argument that the United States is making here when the Congress has spoken and they have used terminology such as um, all, all criminal prosecution, all, all jurisdiction, all offenses against the United States. I mean, those are pretty broad statements that it's hard to rebut by the bank that the U.S. government is arguing here. Um, the second argument that the government, U.S. government makes here is um, that common law immunity should apply. And while the U.S., United States puts forth a number of examples of where um, where the US government has proceeded against foreign entities, um, I think the bank has a, a leg up here because most of the cases cited by the United States really related to either the, the waiving of immunity in those instances or really related to just the issuance of criminal subpoenas. And so it's it, it was not, as the bank stated at the very opening of its reply brief, there's never been an instance where the United States has criminally prosecuted in trial another foreign sovereign. So um, it's gonna be hard for the United States, I think, to overcome that argument because it's the facts of the facts. Now, the, the United States also says that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act did not immunize the petitioner here because based upon the FSIA's text, its structure, and the history It does not apply to criminal cases. As the United States quotes, I mean, 28 U.S.C. Section 1330 specifically says that it grants jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns only in non-jury civil cases. Again, that's pretty plain, pretty straightforward. That's clearly the language that FSIA only applies to civil cases. Now, what the bank argues in response is, while the Congress has authorized non-jury civil cases against foreign sovereigns, the Section 1604 immunity provision does not have qualifying language relating to civil uh, trials only. And so that's what the, the bank really hangs its hat on, is that immunity granted under 1604 the bank tries to argue encompasses both criminal and civil. And as we'll, I'll talk about a little bit. The, the justices were having a real hard time with the bank's argument that we start with FSIA applying only uh, or granting jurisdiction for lawsuits, civil lawsuits against foreign entities, foreign sovereigns. But the bank then comes in and says, but the immunity provision of that jurisdiction should apply to all criminal and civil, um, and I, I don't really think the the court was buying that argument. So let's let's jump into that argument. the the uh, The arguments yesterday were fascinating. Both sides I thought did a real good job. Um, I, I thought the justices had some really really pointed questions. Uh, attorney Lisa Blatt argued for Hawk Bank, and she told the justices straight out of the gate that allowing criminal prosecutions of foreign countries. As the United States is arguing here, uh, would be unprecedented, unprecedented, and frankly would risk retaliation by other countries against the United States and their instrumentalities. And you know, you she gave some examples like the Import-Export Bank, um, the Voice of America, a number of entities that the United States government um controls, owns, and has uh a lot of actions throughout. The world, um, but I want to. I want to pose this. Miss Blatt stated, and I quote: "The executive applauds this result, arguing that it alone makes the common law of criminal immunity. But the executive does not make the law, and an immunity waivable by your prosecutor is no immunity at all." Close quote. I thought that was a pretty good argument on Mrs. Blatt's part. Um, if you say, if the prosecutor says you have immunity or you don't have immunity, does anyone really have immunity? Um, so the FSIA, which generally bars lawsuits against foreign governments in U.S. courts, um, Ms. Blatt said just it doesn't it doesn't apply just to civil lawsuits, despite what I mentioned earlier, that the Section 1330 specifically says non-jury civil lawsuits. Um, Ms. Platt argues that it prohibits criminal cases against all foreign countries. Um, a ruling that the FSI only confers immunity in civil lawsuits would mean that Congress created special rules just for civil lawsuits, but in Ms. Platt's words, threw sovereigns to the wolves, close quote, for criminal cases. And she said, frankly, quote, That would be cataclysmic. It would mean, quote, 50 states, all counties in any city in this country that has prosecution authority would all of a sudden have jurisdiction to prosecute any country qua country. And because Congress has expressly waived immunity and canceled it out on the statute, the executive branch can't do anything about it, close quote. That's pretty compelling. And the justices picked up on that compelling argument multiple times throughout. But right out of the gate, as soon as Ms. Blatt finished her argument, Justice Thomas began questioning by saying, what was the difference between subject matter jurisdiction and immunity? Specifically asking, if immunity were waived here in this situation, would there still be subject matter jurisdiction? And Ms. Blatt answered that there was no jurisdiction under the General Criminal Jurisdiction statute of 1331, because as I mentioned, the Schooner Exchange case earlier, uh, but that Section 1604, the immunity provision under the FSIA would cancel out any remaining jurisdiction. And to be frank, I don't really think any of the justices were buying the subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, They kept inquiring with Ms. Blatt about common law immunity and how do we get past that they weren't really buying her argument that fsia only relates to civil lawsuits but immunity relates to both civil and criminal they weren't really buying that Um, really what they were buying and what i think the justices were most concerned about with miss blatt's argument was opening pandora's box here allowing state City, county, local, whatever. However, many thousands of prosecutors there are throughout the United States. Free range on prosecuting foreign entities, whether that be China or India or Iran or Pakistan or whomever. It opens the floodgates, and really, without any recourse that the United States can stop it. Um, a number of justices focused on. Well, let me ask. Let me talk about this real quick. Justice Alito talked about or or pressed the United States government's um, assistance or deputy solicitor general to explain that question. How could the federal government thwart or stop a criminal prosecution by an elected state prosecutor? And. I really don't think that the Deputy Solicitor General's response was that good because he, he stated that the United States could file a letter, file a letter in state court suggesting that the proceedings should be dismissed. And frankly, I don't think Justice Alito was buying that argument either. either. Um, because Justice Alito responded that, well, the court, the local court could just ignore the federal government's letter, it's just a letter. And could require that the federal government take the case all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, but Gorsuch really piggybacked on Justice Alito's arguments, or questioned rather, and, and said, and, and tried to pinpoint the Deputy Solicitor General down and say, asking him specifically what provision of the Constitution allowed the Supreme Court of the United States, through the Supremacy Clause, to tell states that they were violating customary international law if they were to bring such a lawsuit. And frankly, I I don't think the Deputy Solicitor General really had a good argument, a really good answer. And and frankly, I don't think you really answered Justice Gorsuch's um, question there. Now, another thing I think Justice Gorsuch brought up, which is a very valid point, which is you know, the United States hung its hat on Section 3231 and the plain language, which says all offenses against the United States. That should give jurisdiction over all criminal cases, all offenses against the United States. Well, Justice Corses turned that argument a little bit on the United States and pressed the government about the plain language of 1604. And 1604 says, in part, a foreign state shall be immune from the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States and of the states. Clear and simple. Foreign states shall be immune from the jurisdiction of the courts. So according to Gorsuch, he said, on this plain language, quote, we normally start with the statute itself. And if the statute is clear, we stop there. And here, the statute's language doesn't parse out criminal versus civil. It says, courts shall have no jurisdiction to entertain something like that. Pretty broad language, that would normally encompass both civil and criminal in a normal case, close quote. Again, the government really didn't have a good argument in response to this, other than, and it may be a good argument, other than that one a court has to look at the language of 1604 in the entire context of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, the, for, the entire context of the FSIA. That means the way that Section 1330 limited jurisdiction to non-jury civil cases, and you can't read 1604 in a vacuum. Again, might be a good argument, but I thought Judge Justice Scorch just pressed him um, on the plain language of the argument. Now, Justice Kavanaugh, as you would expect, kept coming back to, you know, whether the court should just let the executive branch decide on prosecuting foreign sovereign instrumentalities. Um, and frankly, Kavanaugh said if the Congress didn't like it, they they could just come back and put restrictions on the government. But that was that was in the bank's argument that Kavanaugh stated that Kavanaugh also stated in the United States argument. Um, whether the court should look at all these questions and uh, try to fit it into a statutory st- a scheme that already exists in Congress and. And. Um, basically decide whether the United States has the authority. And if the United States does not have the authority, the government, the executive branch should go to Congress to get more authority. And so Kavanaugh was kind of playing both sides of, well, first off, should we let the executive branch do its thing, its article to authority, Over prosecutions, criminal prosecutions, over foreign affairs? Or has Congress even granted the courts jurisdiction to hear such cases? And if it has not, and the executive branch wants to prosecute such cases, shouldn't the executive branch have to go to Congress and get Congress to grant subject matter jurisdiction to the courts in order for the executive branch to prosecute foreign sovereigns criminally? in our courts. Um, Justice Odom raised, I I think, really a tangential issue. I I don't really think it went to the merits, but her question was, you know, what's the possibility of we have a rogue prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, that could bring, you know, indictments against foreign governments? Um, Again, the Deputy Solicitor General tried to reassure that there are processes in place, that that wouldn't happen, the Department of Justice, uh the Attorney General, and ultimately the President could order a United States Attorney's Office to dismiss such cases. Um, Justice Barrett asked about the need to prosecute foreign countries when criminal charges could be brought against individuals. Um, And the Deputy Solicitor General, I think, rightly stated that, you know, they, they, they the executive branch could and did bring criminal prosecutions against individuals, but many times such individuals were out of the reach of the federal government. Um, and it, specifically in this case too, had been indicted and, and not been extradited or, or brought to justice. And in that case, there are instances where the executive branch, it makes sense to go after the, the publicly owned business, in order for the united states government to have a deterrent effect to prevent other foreign sovereign instrumentalities from doing the same thing um the thing and i i failed to mention this at the very beginning because at the very beginning of the oral arguments justice kavanaugh raised this and, and you would expect this of a, a justice whose prior career involved you know in the white house counsel's office but Kavanaugh really hit the bank hard saying it would be pretty, quote, pretty bizarre for this court to tell the president of the United States that it was placing limits on the executive branch's ability to exercise its national security powers. Um, Kavanaugh described that as, quote, big steps and, quote, that would be huge. Um, And again, Kavanaugh said if if Congress disagrees with what the United States government is doing here in this case, Congress can come back and pass new laws and restrict federal government's prosecution of foreign countries. Um, One thing that kept recurring over and over and over again in the oral arguments was the prospect of possibly sending the case back to the Second Circuit, remanding it back to the Second Circuit. to determine whether there might be principles under international law um, that granted immunity to the bank. And whether if, if the FSIA did not shield the bank from criminal prosecution, should the second circuit look at common law or international law? Uh, and specifically, there were a few times where some justices asked, um, should they send it back to the Second Circuit to determine whether the bank was, in fact, a true instrumentality of uh, the government of Turkey? Um, I think both both sides, the, the bank and the United States, really didn't see that as necessary. Uh, the bank specifically said that the gov- federal government has really conceded that point, And I, I think they are correct. But... Um, At the end of the day, you know, again, this case is fascinating with different uh, issues of statutory interpretation, um, the history, the context that that this this Supreme Court is really looking at uh, and relying upon. Um, And I thought I would have a better sense of where the court might be coming down after hearing the oral arguments. But um, I've got to tell you, I'm up in the air. I I really don't know. Um, I, I thought the bank did a really good job of focusing on the fact that our country has been around over 200 years. And really up until 1989, did the United States government really start pursuing or or trying to prosecute or or go after with criminal subpoenas uh, various foreign sovereigns or their instrumentalities. So for almost 200 years, it was assumed that foreign governments were immune from criminal prosecution in the United States courts. And again, I think that's a very compelling argument, which you know, the bank would say, that's why Congress did not include any reference to criminal prosecutions when it passed the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in 1976, because everyone thought, well, foreign governments are immune from criminal prosecution in US courts. Um, and to, to Justice Barrett's question about, have there been any state prosecutions of foreign sovereigns or their instrumentalities? And the, the Ms. Blatt for the bank said, she, other than a few here or there, they, they, they really haven't. Because, again, the the assumption was that foreign sovereigns were not criminally liable in U.S. courts for almost the entirety of the history of our country. So again, fascinating case, A lot, maybe a lot more questions than when we went in with the oral argument, but uh, really good questions by the justices and, and really good job by both sides. So uh, happy to answer any questions. I hope it didn't muddle up too much for you guys. And thanks for the time.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Mr. Hurst. Really appreciate that summary of the facts of the case as well as sort of how we got to this point and then of oral argument. Um, We actually do have some audience questions. So I'll hop right in while issuing the brief reminder that if you have questions, feel free to submit them via the Q&A feature that's at the bottom of your Zoom window. Our first question comes from Jeffrey Wood, who asks, assuming the federal government can thread the needle on the statutory questions and the bank is forced to rely on the common law as international law arguments, does the Bank have an alternative enforcement mechanism for internationally agreed sanctions? Uh, would enforcement only be through international tribunals such as the ICJ uh, or an international law marshaling of shame type thing?
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I really don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I, 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 I'm I'm more (laughs) as a former AUSA and a former U.S. attorney. I'm I'm more focused on the on the domestic side. Um, I I did do a little foreign uh, international affairs work, but uh, but I don't know what the prospect of, you know, some type of international tribunal or a thing like that. Um, So I'm sorry, Jeffrey, I really can't answer that question.
1: Well, Fair enough. Uh, a secondary question. Um, she touched on slightly, so it may be a moot point. Um, did the nation state of Turkey intervene or file an amicus? I know you talked about um, how the government has essentially given up the point that this is a foreign sovereign and an actor on behalf of a foreign sovereign, so that's not really an issue. Um, but did Turkey itself get involved?
0: Yeah, Turkey actually filed an amicus brief. Um, and And again, I hate to say, since I've only and looking at this case for the last six days, I didn't get a chance to read their brief to see exactly how they were positioning themselves. But again, uh, the briefs filed by the bank uh, set forth pretty clearly uh, the facts of the relationship between the bank and Turkey, including the fact that uh, the government of Turkey uh, owned 87 percent. Of the shares and the stock of uh, of the bank of uh, People's Bank of Turkey. Now, the in the oral arguments, the the deputy solicitor general tried to make an issue of that, but he was he was shut down pretty quickly, uh, especially by Justice Gorsuch, uh, saying that you know, no, I'm sorry, United States, you really didn't contest or or, or really fight that and the lower court. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I, and I know Justice Jackson in particular thought about remanding it to the second circuit to delve into that more, but I don't really know how much support she's gonna have for that.
1: Got it, thank you. Um, another question from our audience comes from David Chu, who asks, did anyone raise the acts of state doctrine that grants sovereign immunity to the government's acts within its own borders, which seems to be what's at case here?
0: I didn't know there was no allegation in any of the briefs or reply briefs about the acts of state doctrine. There, uh, there were some analogies made to the alien, alien torts act, alien torts claims act. I may have that wrong. Um, there, there were the admiralty section. There were another, uh, a number of jurisdictional sections passed in the act, Judiciary Act of 1789 related to the general grants of criminal jurisdiction. And uh, again, I, I thought I thought the bank did a good job of parsing out the various Supreme Court cases that had come before this case about those provisions, and specifically the Schooner Exchange. Uh, talking, where just Chief Justice Marshall said, "If if Congress wants to do this, they've got to be almost explicit in granting criminal jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns." Um, but again, I, I thought that was compelling. I didn't get the sense from our arguments that the Supreme Court justices thought it was very compelling.
1: Understood. Uh, we've had a couple of questions that I'll, I'll combine here. Um, and it's, it's concerning what other remedies may be. So it based on whether or not um, Turkey Halkbankisi, which lest I virtue it further, I'll call Halkbank, or the government, whichever one wins, uh, what the remedy would be. um, If the Fed has jurisdiction, what what are the options there? Is this case going to be any different than the trials that have already gone on? Um, And then alternately, uh, if there is a ruling that there isn't jurisdiction, um, does the, the executive still has other options? What might those be?
0: Yeah, the first, if if they rule for the United States, the case goes back to the Southern District of New York and and they try the bank just like any other criminal trial. Um, at the end, if they convict the bank on these charges, what I've experienced in, in my in my prior life of prosecuting uh, corporations or, or other types of entities, you know, you can't put a, a bank in jail. So the really, the only options you have are fines, penalties, and stuff like that. Now, if the Supreme Court sides with the bank in this case, then you know the 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 federal government, the executive branch, is left with all the options that, frankly, the bank references in their brief, which is you still have your sanctions regime, you still have all the uh, options under the Department of State. Um, and, you know, it's extreme, but the bank did reference that when there are issues with foreign governments, uh, the United States government has options other than criminal prosecutions, including, you know, uh, military action. So there are a lot of other things that the United States government can do other than bringing a foreign sovereign into the, um, into the courts of the United States and, and trying them or prosecuting them criminally.
1: Got it. Um, following up on this idea of what happens if the court rules in favor of Hulk Bank, um, what uh, if you know might be the effect of such a ruling on the scope of the FSIA, and would there be courts that still retain jurisdiction either in criminal cases like this or in civil cases? What what are the sort of effects of ruling in in favor of Hulk Bank?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how far-reaching it will be just because the United States government has not really used its criminal prosecutorial authority to go after foreign sovereigns or their instrumentalities to a great degree. Um, the United States does cite a number of cases where they have uh, uh, attempted it. Those cases, as I mentioned, mainly involve the waiver of immunity, mainly involve the issuing of criminal subpoenas, um, the United States says that if the bank wins this case before the Supreme Court, that will put at jeopardy its ability to gather information through criminal subpoenas of foreign sovereigns or their instrumentalities or to pursue them. I mean, the, the, the United States makes, um, makes an analogy that um, if the Supreme Court goes with the bank and sides with the bank in this case, then that means uh, a foreign sovereign that tries to interfere with our elections. Or a foreign sovereign that tries to, um, you know, like this case, get past our sanctions of a what we would deem a terrorist uh, country, or or try to do any type of sabotage that affects the United States, um, the United States would be uh, at a loss to criminally go after those foreign sovereigns. So um, it's it's a it's a sky is falling type argument from the government, but I, I think some of those are legitimate.
1: Got it. Well, thank you. And uh, now the opposite question. Um, what are the effects of the court ruling in favor of the government saying that there is jurisdiction here? Are there institutions that formerly might have been considered immune um, that now could be subject to federal courts, either in civil or criminal cases?
0: Well, I think the bank's arguments and the justices' concerns um, as noted by their questions are legitimate, which is we're not talking about just opening up the federal courts for um, for pros- criminal prosecution by a U.S. attorneys' offices. We're talking about potentially opening up courts to criminal prosecution of foreign com- countries by state, county, local prosecutors. And the way the bank put it to the Supreme Court is: this is if you just des- if you decide. There is jurisdiction to criminally prosecute foreign sovereigns. You've basically judicially declared war on foreign countries throughout the world. And that's, that's, that's a pretty, I mean, it's hyperbolic, but that's a, pretty, that's a pretty bold statement, but it's also a pretty scary thing to think about as well.
1: Yeah, so the effects of either decision may be far-reaching. Either there is a significant limitation of a capacity to go after foreign actors, or it's a almost a declaring of open season, or at least that's those are the arguments that are, are being put forward. Those
0: are the arguments. But again, I think Justice uh, Kavanaugh is correct in the sense that if there really is this circuit split, as the bank argues, the Sixth Circuit has decided one way, I think the 10th, 2nd, and I believe the seventh. I may have that wrong. Uh, there, There is a. if there is a circuit split, then all Congress has to do is do what it did in 1976. Come in, give some clarity, pass a statute that, that clarifies exactly what can be done on the criminal side with regard to foreign sovereigns and their instrumentalities.
1: Got it. Um, A couple questions on the uh, nature of the FSIA um, coming out of this. Uh, What would it mean for the future of the application of the FSIA if the court grants, regardless of which side they say wins, um, the argument that it only applies to civil cases?
0: Yeah, uh, back to my last answer. I think if that's the case, um, I think you'll probably see whatever administration you have because remember this this prosecution began in the Trump administration and it's still being argued um to go forward in the Biden administration. So I, I think anyone who is president wants a strong executive branch. And I think what you'll see is that executive branch going to Congress and trying to get an expansion of the FSIA to specifically and and, and clearly allow the executive branch to exercise what it would argue is its already existing Article II authority under the Constitution to criminally prosecute those who have violated uh, United States law.
1: Okay. Um, are there other laws, and, and this may not be something that's in your wheelhouse, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, are there other laws governing a district court jurisdiction or jurisdiction in general that would be affected by how the court uh, rule how, how far the court rules the FSII reaches, um, given that we're dealing with a particular definition of sort of a sovereign entity or a state. Right. I,
0: I don't think so, but I'm I'm not certain. Don't hold me to that. All, all I know is <laughs> what I read in the briefs and, and what I've heard in the arguments. So.
1: Fair enough. Uh, well, I'll, I'll pose the last question and barring none from our audience, perhaps we'll wrap early, give everybody back um, some time. Uh, we You touched on what arguments seem to have been convincing to the court um, and you've also mentioned that you don't know how the court will rule. Um, that said, do you have a read, even a general or unsolidified one, and I won't hold you to it, as to uh, what the key or determinative points in this issue will be for the justices? What might be those key sticking points where you can get a, a coalition of people to agree that this is the issue, regardless of how the list Side.
0: Yeah, I, I really think, um, and this is, is, is kind of unusual. I think I'm, I may be naive, but, um, I, I really think the, uh, the the effects that are ruling allowing this to go forward, um, allowing the executive, uh, the United States to go forward with criminal prosecution saying that, um, all, all, all offenses against the United States means all offenses. And it's, 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 it's open season on foreign sovereign governments and their instrumentalities. I think that's going to keep a number of justices awake last night or tonight or the next couple of days, because the implications again, for that, I think it's just, it's so far reaching. And, in this political envi- environment where you have very, um, you know, you have elected district attorneys, you have elected attorneys general, you have a number of uh, people who are running for office or want to make a statement. I, I can definitely see um, some of these trying to haul in, you know, a, a specific country that might not be uh, as well liked by the uh, the citizens electors uh, being hauled in for criminal prosecution. And again to the uh the deputy solicitor general didn't really have a good answer as to what the federal government to, could do to stop that i don't think filing a letter saying the united states disagrees with this is going to do much to a uh a, a state attorney general or a state da who's running for reelection and wants to galvanize its supporters to get behind it by bringing the criminal prosecution of a foreign country that it's criminal supporter. I mean, it's uh it's elected uh its citizens electing them uh may not like. So I, I think there could be far-reaching compli- uh, complications with this. And I think that more so than, you know, maybe statutory interpretation or uh traditional um ways of looking at uh the authority of the executive branch under the constitution. I think that question of actually what are the consequences of a decision like that, I, I think that's going to really drive what some of these justices do. I don't really think I answered your question, though.
1: <laughs> no, no, I think that did. It says, hey, here's what are the, the key, what might be a key um, point of discussion uh, about, about which that may draw some lines down the court. And that, that seems definitely to be one of them based on oral argument and the way you've presented it. Um, we'll wrap it there. On behalf of the Federalist Society, thank you, Mr. Hurst, for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise today. And thank you to our audience for joining and participating. Oh, we welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-sock.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about other upcoming virtual events. With that, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federal Society's Practice Groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.